Welcome to the Lancaster Patriot Podcast. My name is Chris Hume, Managing Editor of the Lancaster Patriot. I'm joined by Joel Saint, Pastor of Independence Reformed Bible Church. Joel, thanks for joining me today. Hey, thanks for having me. Great to be here once again. Today we want to look at a theological topic, not so much a, a news issue, although I will say that in recent times, over the past, I don't know, two, three, four years, the issue of postmillennialism has gotten more traction within Christendom, so to speak. Not necessarily people agreeing with it, although I think more people are, but just talking about it. Has that been your experience? Oh, yeah. No no question about it. I mean, if, a few years ago, no one even knew what you were talking about. It. Now people have some, a, a lot of people have a kind of a, of, of a rough of idea of what postmillennialism holds as an, as an eschatological or a idea of the future. Right. So we're talking about here a millennial view and we may not get into a ton of the nitty-gritty here today, but the three typical millennial views are premillennialism, amillennialism, and postmillennialism. And Joel is a postmillennialist, so am I. And in fact, Joel, you recently participated in a forum on the three millennial views. Indeed, I did. Uh, we I had a half an hour. We each had a half an hour. This was set up by a church, the Fellowship Church in Dallas, PA. Apparently, the evangelical free denomination dropped their requirement to be pre-mill in order to be a church in good standing in the um, evangelical free denomination. So they um, uh, invited me and two other men to each present their position. I presented the post-mill position, and they presented the another man presented the all-mill position, and another one the uh, pre-mill position. The other two were evangelical free uh, pastors, uh, and I was, uh, of course, I'm a pastor, but I was not an evangelical free pastor. All right. Well, let's start with a definition of post-millennialism, if we can. I actually want to read not really a full definition, but this is from Keith Matheson's book, Postmillennialism and Eschatology of Hope. And he says, according to postmillennialism, in the present age, the Holy Spirit will draw unprecedented multitudes to Christ through the faithful preaching of the gospel. At the end of the present age, Christ will return. There will be a general resurrection of the just and the unjust, and the final judgment will take place. Again, obviously very concise here, but I think the distinguishing thing here would be that the Holy Spirit will draw unprecedented multitudes to Christ prior to Christ's return. You know, what, one thing that's intriguing to me is, is that um, John says, when he's in heaven, he, see, he sees a multitude which no man can number. We, we do not have that kind of language when it comes to the lost that I know of anywhere. Now, what uh, a lot of people go to is what Christ said there in Matthew. Um, he, he talked about those that um, the, the, the narrow gate and the, and the wide gate, if you will, the, or the wide path. And some people say, well, that, that precludes post-millennialism. But I know what, one of the things that John Calvin does with that, and he's not the only one, he says, no, he's talking about the people that he was talking to then and there, which, was, which, which turned out to be quite true, because they wound up rejecting him. There were few in comparison of the people that he was talking to that found that narrow gate or walked through that narrow gate, if you will. But the, the statement by John there in Revelation is a very intriguing statement to me. Again, he saw a multitude no man could number. It was it was numberless. And we never have that said about those who do not get into heaven. So I want to read a few of these. Uh, def, these are quotations now. These are, I have quotes from several uh, men. Uh, most of them are now dead, but we have Jonathan Edwards to start here. And I want you to interact with these quotes, uh, kind of building on this very 
concise definition of postmillennialism. So Jonathan Edwards said, the future promised advancement of the kingdom of Christ is an event unspeakably happy and glorious. The scriptures speak of that time as a time wherein God and his son, Jesus Christ, will be eminently glorified on earth. If, if Christ has the same authority in earth as he has in, as it, as he has in heaven, which he said in Matthew 28, and if we're supposed to pray that his kingdom would come and that, that his will would be done on earth as, as it is in heaven, all we have to do then is, is ask if Christ is glorious in heaven. And he is. And Edward's saying here, the future promise advancement of the kingdom of Christ is an event unspeakably happy and glorious. I would say that those are two ad, uh, or adjectives, shall we say, that would definitely characterize heaven, where Christ is, is uh, there's happiness, and we're glorying in Christ there. And Christ himself asked that we prayed that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. I, I want to ask this question, Chris. Why not? Not why. Why not? Given what Christ said, that his will would be, that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, I want to know why not. If you believed in Christ... And if Christ has done a work in your life, why is he limited from doing a work in other people's lives? And why is he limited from, why should we say that there will be no time when God and the Son, Jesus Christ, will be most eminently glorified on earth? Why not? Now, we may not have time today, and maybe we'll get into some of this. If not, we should do another episode on objections to postmillennialism or the quote-unquote problem passages, because a lot of people's reaction is, well, the Bible teaches that in the last days things will get worse and worse, and, and so on and so forth. So that does need to be addressed, but I'm just kind of laying out here um, the, the postmillennial vision, and I want you to give some application later. And if we get a chance to answer objections, we can. If not, we'll do another episode on that. So here's another quote from A.A. A. Hodge. He said, The scriptures, both Old and New Testament, clearly reveal that the gospel is to exercise an influence over all branches of the human family, immeasurably more extensive and more thoroughly transforming than any it has ever realized in time past. The end is to be gradually attained through the spiritual presence of Christ in the ordinary dispensation of providence and ministrations of his church, end quote. A lot packed into that quote there about not only what postmillennialism is, but how it will be experienced. Well, I love his word right there, Chris, uh, transforming. Do we believe the gospel transforms? Obviously, yes, we do. And what he's saying is we have not seen the end of the transformation here. There's so much more transforming that has to be done. Truly, I mean, as the gospel goes out, you know, uh, Isaiah says, there is no peace, uh, saith my God, to the wicked. So as the gospel goes out, obviously peace is going to go out with it, and we're going to see more and more peace. It, it, just a, a real quick point about that. You know, Oliver Cromwell was influenced by the Puritans, and he actually influenced the end of, a, end of the war between the English and the Dutch. So, see, there, there was a man applying the scriptures and transform actually ending a war. And people are like, well, you're not, the gospel doesn't end wars. It already has. Let's go to Oswald T. Alice. Have you heard of him before? I have indeed. Okay. He said, my own studies in this and related fields have convinced me that the most serious error in much of the current prophetic teaching of today is the claim that the future of Christendom, by the way, is that where Mars got the name? 
Uh, I'm not. I'm not sure if that's where I, I maybe, we got that. It's, it's been a while. Maybe so. subconsciously. Yeah, perhaps your, your Alice reading. Okay, so he says, um, and this is actually important because this shows a little bit of the contrast between a lot of the the quote unquote prophetic teaching, as he terms it here, uh, which in in our day there's a lot of premillennialism there. You know, oh, the prophecies, the end times, the rapture is coming, things are getting worse and worse. Uh, but Oswald Alice here says that uh, this error in much of the prophetic teaching of the day is in the claim that the future of Christendom is to be read not in terms of revival and victory, but of growing impotence and apostasy, and that the only hope of the world is that the Lord will by his visible coming and reign complete the task which he has so plainly entrusted to the church. When speaking of Matthew twenty-eight eighteen through 30, the Great Commission, 18 through 20, excuse me, I, I will tell you that that was a verse that was very influential in me coming over to post-millennialism. It, it's an intriguing area there because Christ, had, it's, it's the end of Matthew, Christ had already risen from the dead, and here we have Christ, uh, well, before that, it says that the, he, he appeared to the 11, or appeared to the disciples, I should say, but some doubted. Now, that's interesting to me. Why he's already risen from the dead? Why are you doubting? Matthew includes that because the next thing he says is all authority, all power is given to me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore, or go therefore and teach the nations. Now, why would he say, why would he say all authority is given to me in heaven and in earth? In other words, he's pointing out to them, he has no less authority here on earth than he does in heaven, unless he doesn't have authority in heaven, which is a crazy idea. He has the exact same amount of authority in heaven as he has on earth. But he starts out, Chris, by saying, I have authority on earth. Now, if, if, if he doesn't have what it takes to get it done, he could have just said, you know, I have authority in heaven, not on earth, but go therefore and, and, and give it your best shot. Give it a try. No, he gave them a, the confidence to, to know that it's going to get done. Listen to this. I mean, all authority is given to me in heaven and earth. Go therefore and teach all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe whatever I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always. He gives the commission and he sandwiches it with sweeping statements of authority that this is going to get done. And I'm going to tell you, Chris, once I, once I got a hold of that, and some other passages as well that we that we may be able to talk about. I was never going back. Jesus Christ has the authority to make sure it gets done. Now, I want to read this quote from Keith Matheson. Keith Matheson here says, 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ gave a handful of believers the mission of taking the gospel to the world, and through the small group of men, he turned the world upside down. Today, the church numbers in the millions, and the spiritual resources available to her are no less than they were then. The church must begin again to pray fervently that the kingdom of sin and Satan may be destroyed, the gospel propagated throughout the world, the Jews called, and the fullness of the Gentiles brought in. God has promised to accomplish this, and his word will not fail. This is going to take us a bit into application, although there might be a few Bible verses I want to look at before that. But if you have this vision of the gospel prevailing in the world, then you will necessarily have this sense of duty to see that it does in, in as much as we are able. Yeah, love that quote. I want to go back to a time I had graduated from a dispensational Bible college, and I'd been taught that the world was getting worse and worse, and that's inevitable. And also around people like Hal Lindsey, 
the late great planet Earth, and um, worse, the terminal generation. And no one was thinking back then that I know of, of, well, what if we're not the terminal generation? What if we spend our credit card and now we actually have to pay the, uh, pay the bill because we didn't get raptured out of here before the bill came due? No one was talking about that back then, as I recall. And I remember, Chris, standing at the sink with my wife. And I think we had three children at the time and maybe a fourth one on the way, something like that. And we got we, we were standing at the sink. We were washing dishes together. We didn't have a dishwasher. And we, and we, we were talking, and, and, and we started to talk. I said, why, why do we have to believe that this is the end? Why can't we believe that, by the grace of God, our children will actually have a future? And, you know, I'm 65 now. And those that are my age can remember when it was that, that, and that kind of talk is still going on. Why have children? Bring them in this world that's just getting worse and worse and worse. But what Matheson is saying here, the church must begin again to pray fervently that the kingdom of sin and Satan may be destroyed. What is the problem with that prayer? I think it sounds pretty much like the Lord's Prayer. Right. The gospel pro propagated through the world. That sounds to me like the Great Commission. The Jews called. That sounds to me like the Book of Romans. Right. The fullness of the Gentiles brought in. Sounds like really all of Scripture right there. I mean, we have in, in the New Testament, I believe it's Romans 14, where Paul three or four times talks about the Gentiles believing. Uh, we, we have that in Isaiah. We have that in in. Um, uh, boy, I'm getting all excited here. We have that in Matthew when he quotes Isaiah, talking about the, the Gentiles coming in. He, he quote, you know, smoking flax. He 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 won't quench or whatever. And and, and the the coastlands will wait for his law. And in him, the in, in the Gentiles are going to trust in him. This, I would challenge anyone to find out to. to to say, where is Matheson's state, statement here? If you don't mind, I'm going to read it again. Mm -hmm. where, the second part of it, where this is wrong, where this is unbiblical, the church must begin again to pray fervently that the kingdom of sin and Satan may be destroyed, the gospel propagated throughout the world, the Jews called and the fullness of the Gentiles brought in. God has promised to accomplish this and his word will not fail. How can you have a problem with that? Yeah, and it seems the, the problem is that God has promised to accomplish this. And that's where a lot of people go and say, God hasn't promised this. And we can spend a lot of time on that. We'll probably get to some verses here definitely before we move to application. I want you to comment, though, Joel, on what he says here. He says, 2,000 years ago, there was a small group of disciples, right? And they turned the world upside down. I think, and tell me if you agree, one of the reasons people have such a hard time with post-millennialism is because they don't understand history. They don't understand what happened 2,000 years ago and how the world changed drastically. And we can be tempted to just look, you know, within the past 100 years or 50 years or even less and say, wow, look how bad things have gotten in my lifetime. And you don't have this sweeping view of history. But was the world turned upside down by the gospel? Do we have historical evidence or examples of the gospel drastically changing the world? And if we do, then wouldn't that, in one sense, help us to understand that it could happen again? Why are we not grateful for those who came before us? I mean, we, we live here in North America. Wasn't that long ago when the gospel wasn't here at all? And you had ro roving bands of people that fought with each other, killed each other. And it was, not, it was a very hostile place. Think about it. I mean, right, we're right now here in Pennsylvania. You wouldn't have wanted to come here in Pennsylvania five, 600 years ago on your own. Like, it was a hostile place. Well, what changed it? Uh, hint, it wasn't Voltaire and the sophists and the atheists. Hmm. 
Right. No, it was the gospel coming. Why can't we understand, Chris? Oh man, I'm 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 telling you what I got the adrenaline going here. But but why can't we understand that the gospel has already done so much transforming? And we say what it's what in, in I don't know 1965 it was the end of the transformation of the gospel. Now, right? It's already transformed North America. It, we're, we're giving up on it now. Shame on us! But all we're doing is we're seeing the judgment of the, the act of God judging His people who have turned their back on Him. Quite frankly, that should actually show us how much the gospel can change the world. Chris, we, we we have the Bible and we have experience now. I'm sorry to cut you off. Yeah, no, you're right, and it, it is a dark time in American society. But that shows us where we've fallen from. And you've mentioned, you know, America, but even before that, the pagan cultures in the Middle East, Asia, and Europe, I mean, there was human sacrifice all over the place. I mean, almost every culture had their pagan gods, their version of Baal and Molech and Ashtoreth. Christ came and displaced those gods and changed the world. And the sin and the things we're experiencing now are because we've returned to those pagan deities, but Christ has done it before and he'll do it again. He'll he'll disband them and spread his kingdom. His, his, kingdom, his kingdom cannot fail. He rules or heaven and earth. The keys of death and hell are to our Jesus given, not to Satan, to Jesus. He's introduced in, 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 in Revelation. He has the keys to death and hell. I want us to look at just a few Bible verses. We're not going to be able to go into this in depth. I have some here, but if you have another one you want to bring up, after we look at these Bible verses, I want to get into application. Obviously, there's a lot more we could say about defining postmillennialism, answering objections, but I, I want in this episode to kind of just give people a, a brief introduction and then have you really show some of the application of this belief to life. So uh, I'm going to just read a portion of Psalm 22 here. It says, All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. There's several other verses here we could cite. Do we have Psalm 86? All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you. Psalm 2, of course, in verse 8, says, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Well, starting there with Psalm 22, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations shall worship before you. Kingship belongs to the Lord. He rules over the nations, future or present. Well, all we have to do is go to the book of Revelation, and we see John introducing Christ. He's introduced there as the, as the ruler of the kings of the earth, present tense in the book of Revelation. So there's no question that he, what uh, Psalm is saying here is, is embodied in Christ. Kingship belongs to the Lord. John would agree with that in the book of Revelation. He rules over the nations. Yeah, I'm pretty sure if he is the ruler of the nations in, in Revelation, then he rules the nations. In, that, in those verses, what's going to happen? What is going to happen as he rules? We have it in the beginning of the passage. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. That's what happens when we have a conquering king for a king. Yeah, he, he is a conquering king, and when a king conquers a people, he brings them under his dominion. To say that Christ is a conquering king, and yet the subjects will continue to rebel against him, doesn't seem to jive with, with these texts. Yeah, you definitely can't do both, right? He's a conquering king, and everybody's going to be everybody's going to rebel against him at the same time. No, he's a conquering king. I think what we've been taught for years, Chris, is that he is a negotiating king or a retreating king. No, he's a conquering king. 
Isaiah chapter 2, the, the prophecy of the mountain of the house of the Lord, that will be established and all the nations shall flow to it. Again, just this theme of the Gentiles, the nations, the world coming to Christ. There's many prophecies like that in Isaiah. Any, any comment on, on those passages in Isaiah? Yeah, because the Isaiah passage says, I believe, I believe it says, if, I think you might have it in front of you there, that this is going to happen in the last days. The mountain of the Lord shall be established and all the nations shall flow into it. I believe that it says that that's going to happen in the last days. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Wow. The last days are the latter days. In the latter days, the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established. All the nations shall flow into it. When did those days start? Well, we know from Hebrews chapter one that God, quoting it, God who in sundry times and diverse manners spoke through the prophets has in these last days spoken through his son. And I am running into folks more and more, even dispensationalists who will now agree that the last days started with the advent of Christ. Okay. So what's going to happen in the advent of Christ? You just read it. The mountain of the house of the Lord will be established. All nations are going to flow into it. And that nation's things kind of sounds a little bit, does it not, Chris, like what Christ was, was talking about in Matthew 28. Go and teach the nations. Can you comment on Matthew 13 and the idea of the kingdom of heaven starting small and growing gradually? I sure can, uh, Chris. And that is consistent with other, other verses that we have in the scriptures. The kingdom of heaven does expand gradually. For example, uh, from Daniel 2, uh, verse 35, uh, then the iron, the clay, the bronze, we're talking about the, Daniel's vision here. And how does the kingdom of heaven destroy this, this image? Listen to how it works. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. Now, that is really something to th think about and consider there. This, you know, we were talking about a conquering king here. That is serious destruction. He turns bronze, silver, gold, iron, and clay into chaff, worthless chaff. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. That's how sweeping this victory is. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. The stone became, it's gradual here. It grew, if you will. It, it wasn't a mountain that struck the image. It was a stone. It was something small. Another, another verse, uh, and this is something we referenced a little bit earlier, but this is Jesus quoting, quoting Isaiah. Uh, but when Jesus knew that they, they wanted to make him a king, and here's what's going on here. Well, why, why didn't he let them make him a king? The reason why he doesn't let them make a king, him a king, he's already a king. Hmm. And, and we need to understand this when we say, well, you make Jesus Lord of your life. No, no, no. You need to recognize him. He's already Lord and King of your life. You're either a rebel or you're a willing subject. And that's why, uh, and so, so in Matthew 12, they want to make him a king, but, but Matthew 12, 15 says, but when Jesus knew it, he withdrew from there and great multitudes followed him and he healed them all. Yet he warned them not to make him known that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet saying, behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. 
A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench, till he sends forth justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will trust. This is something that's a process here, Chris. It's not a big bang at the end of time. and, and, and so No. Matthew, quoting Isaiah, is saying the t- it is beginning now, and by the, Christ here is, has begun his ministry, and by the time his, he's done, he will send forth justice to victory, and the Gentiles will trust in his name. Once again, it's sweeping, it's extensive, but it's also gradual. Yeah, it's an important point, which I think critics of postmillennialism sometimes miss. Uh, they look at a snapshot and say, well, it doesn't look like the kingdom's advancing that much right now, so therefore postmillennialism must not be true, but that's not what postmillennialism teaches. Not at all. I liken it to, let's say that your life, let's say you're down by by the shore, right? And your life is uh, three seconds long, okay? And you're on the ocean and the waves are coming in, going out. Well, if your life is just three seconds long, you're either going to say the ocean is going to dry up, if you know, if you see a wave going away, right? Oh, all the water's leaving. Right. Or it's going to flood the whole world. Well, you need a little bigger perspective. And to your point earlier, can we get a little bit more of a perspective here in history, how things were? Otto Scott makes the point in his book, The Great Christian Revolution, that wherever the Israels went, they went north, west, east, and south from Jerusalem. And they ran into human sacrifice, as you mentioned before, everywhere they went. Now, what changed that? Now, we're introducing that back again, but for a long time, human sacrifice, where the gospel went, was obliterated. It was stopped. What stopped it? The gospel. If we would believe that things were going to get worse and worse, then what are we going to say to those 12 disciples that actually through their ministry and their work did great damage to the uh, fake kingdom of, of the, uh, the enemy of our souls? Yeah. You know, things are getting worse and worse, guys. Stay home in Jerusalem, wait for the rapture. Right. Not only did they spread the gospel and lead to the salvation of individuals, but their their work in spreading the gospel led to the demise of of human sacrifice, Absolutely. led to justice and righteousness in society, led to just laws and the protection of the innocent. It changed so many things, and the Bible teaches that's what we should expect as the gospel goes forth. Yeah, which many of the opponents of post-millennialism, once again, say cannot happen anymore. Why can't it happen anymore if it happened already? Well, one of the critiques, I have two critiques here, and then I want you to get into your application. So one is that postmillennialism is simply a social gospel, or it's tied inextricably to the social gospel. Charles Ryrie, uh, he tied postmillennialism to the social gospel, and he said, the social gospel has been an outgrowth of this system, namely postmillennialism, since the idea of a world free from evil is envisioned as a result of man's efforts. Now, that's a key point, because... In my experience, a lot of people will say, we cannot achieve this. These things that you're speaking of, we cannot achieve. And you're teaching that man is going to usher in this golden age. I say, Charles, uh, let's t- let's take a step back here and get a little broader look here. Um, you are you know, a professor, or were at the time, a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. It wasn't that long ago. We're talking 1800s, so a few hundred years ago, when the Comanche Nation ruled the area where you now have this nice, peaceful area. Charles, was it the social gospel that got you your nice position there at Dallas Theological Seminary, you and your colleagues? No, it was the gospel of Jesus Christ transforming the place. And yes, there were battles fought, but the 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 savages, and they were savage, 
the Comanche nations, if you, I, I've looked into that, that nation and they were savage. They had to be beaten back. You had to replace that with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so if you're all about the social gospel, and, and frankly, I, I don't know what the social gospel is exactly other than if I give you, I don't know, um, is his idea of the social gospel what, um, what Jacob did to Esau? Like uh, Jacob said, uh, here's, here's, a bowl of, here's a bowl of soup. Now, uh, now you're a Christian? <laughs> I don't know. What, what is he actually saying? And, and, and the idea of a world, world free from evil Eh, I got a little bit of straw man going here, uh, just a little bit. There's still going to be people, but but Charles, if Christ can save you, you're not free from evil. Why can we not uh, have an entire world full of people who are believing Christ and see their evil, their sin, as they should, as as an awful thing? Is that is that possible? And that result of man's efforts is kind of bothering to me. There, I don't even know what he means by that, Chris. Maybe maybe you do. What? Man's effort. Like we, if we build enough hospitals or soup kitchens, yeah, it's going to bring us into our next, our final critique here. But I think the idea with the social gospel was that mankind is essentially good, and we can just pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and transform society. Do all these social programs, we can change the world because man is essentially good. We can achieve our full potential and bring about this era of great blessing. And there's certain themes with biblical postmillennialism mixed in there, but there's so much that's unbiblical, which is why I think it's unfortunate that people tie postmillennialism together with the social gospel, because postmillennialism does not teach that man can do this by his own efforts. And I want to read a quote from Matheson. He says, postmillennialism does not teach that any of its hopes will be achieved merely as a result of man's efforts. Rather, it teaches that the spread of the kingdom and of the gospel will be accomplished through the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, end quote. So, yes, the social gospel apparently taught or teaches, I don't know who still holds to it, that man by his own effort can bring in a golden age. That's not what the Bible teaches. Well, I think he's close. Um, all he has to do is add uh, one syllable to his idea of the social go- It's It's the socialist gospel that he's actually talking about here. And I would say this. With and, and hope that I'm not going too far out on a limb here. But dispensational premillennialism has been the biggest asset, I believe, to the socialist gospel that we're dealing with today. Now, that's a, you know kind of a strong statement. Why am I saying that? I'm gonna, I'll tell you why I'm going to say that. Here's what I think has happened to the generations that, shall we say, preceded us here. With dispensational premillennialism, the effort was always on, hey, get ready for the rapture. It's going to happen anytime, and we're getting out of here. Meanwhile, other more thoughtful people in Christianity, Chris, they said, well, what about the problems that we have now? And the Christians that were all about the rapture said, well, don't worry about them because Jesus is coming soon. Well, he didn't come soon. Well, the rapture didn't happen. So what happened was the next generations, they turned to socialism. And they said, you know what? Since the Bible doesn't really have the answers here— we're going to go someplace else. We're going to go to the state. And I would argue, I would argue vehemently that dispensational premillennialism has been the biggest, has lent the biggest assistance to what we now see as the socialist gospel going on now. It's ironic that Ryrie would say what he says. So you've really turned the critique on its head and saying that postmillennialism actually would prevent you from embracing some sort of social gospel because postmillennialism teaches the only way you're going to have blessing in society is by adhering to christ's commands 
And if you reject that idea, you have to put something else in place because people being here, they're still going to try to solve the problems and they're going to inevitably put in humanistic efforts. Yes, and, you, and, and you're going to lose and we've lost them, I believe, our best and brightest because these are the ones asking the questions. What about the problems? What about the people that are starving? What, what about even now? What about like you know human sex slavery, this kind of thing? And what dispensational premillennialism said was, and they might say, we didn't say that, but I know about dispensational premillennialism. I know where the money is. The money is in trips to Israel. The money is in prophecy conferences. The money is in books about how the rapture's coming and the signs of the time and, and all that kind of stuff. And you can say, well, we don't really teach that, but I know where the money is and I know where the, the efforts have, have going into. And when you teach people, well, let me back up a little bit. Postmillennialism post teaches without apology, without equivocation, that the civil magistrate is to answer to Christ and Christ rules the civil magistrate. You can say that premillennialism doesn't teach that, but it has. And that's why we've lost our best and brightest here. Well, the Bible really doesn't have anything to say about this. Just kind of try to be a good boy. Well, what about social policy? What about that? The Bible doesn't talk about that. Okay. Well, like I said before, let's let's go off to the pagans. Yeah, the Canaanites let, could teach us. Let the Marxists teach it. So you're saying, just to clarify, you're saying that the dispensationalists, they might not say it, but in practice, their theology leads to the idea that Christ is not actively ruling and reigning over the civil magistrate, and the civil magistrate is required to obey Christ. That is absolutely the practical application. Okay. And I'll, I'll be glad to defend. I'd love to have someone come in here and uh, talk about it. Yeah, that would be great. Uh, one more thing here, and then we'll get into any of the application that you think we've missed. So the other objection, these are more practical objections, That right? Is the kingdom of God then ushered in via political efforts? This is basically just a kind of a, a continuation of the first one. And I just have one more quote from Matheson, and then I'm done with these quotes, and I want to see if you have any application that we've missed. Uh, he says, The preaching of the gospel is God's ordained means of spreading the kingdom, when the church begins to believe that it can bring about lasting change through political means, the growth of the kingdom is drastically slowed. Politics and legislation cannot take the place of regeneration. But he goes on and says this. He says, This is not to say that national governments are outside the boundaries of the Messianic kingdom, for they are not. Christ is their ruler, and they should acknowledge that in their actions and in their legislation. A lot we could say there, but the point here is that, again, another critique of postmillennialism is you guys want to change the laws to force people um, you know, to become Christianized. But his point is, look, political means are not the way the kingdom grows. It grows through the preaching of the gospel, the proclamation of Christ's lordship, but then there is a responsibility on the civil magistrates to obey Christ. Yeah, I'd like to compare this to my family or your family or anybody's family. I run into this all the time. Well, the preaching of the gospel isn't, or, or the, uh, you're not going to save people by, by godly laws. They don't want to say godly most of the time, but by changing the laws is what they usually say, which is kind of weird. It's like they don't even want to say godly laws. <laughs> I've run into that. Can't say godly laws. You want to change the laws. Okay. I'd like to change them to godly laws. Now, given that that's not going to save people, okay, uh, eternally, tr that's true enough. But let's talk about family for a moment. Do you and I not uh, support or enforce any rules in our house because our children are not saved? And so we say, well, you know, um, I'm not going to, I'm not going to force you to not bite your brother or hit your brother because you're not a believer yet. And, you know, uh, we're not going to be able to do that because I don't want to have the idea that telling you not to hit your brother 
that's going to think it, it, it makes you saved. We don't, we don't say that. We preach the gospel to them. We proclaim the gospel, and we enforce loving laws in our house at the same time. Why, why can't a nation do that? What's, what's the problem? The, uh, 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 to Matheson's point, this is not to say that national governments are, out, governments are outside the boundaries of the Messianic kingdom. They are not. They are responsible. We, we have book after book that has to do with political things in the Bible. We have first and second. We have judges. We have Samuel. We have kings. We have the chronicles of the kings. We have Ezra. We have Nehemiah. We have Proverbs and Psalms that, that deal with these things. Many of the prophets, especially Jeremiah, spent all kinds of time in the king's uh, in, in the king's palace. Also spent it down at, spent time down the uh, church or down to the uh, down at the temple as, as well. So, a friend of mine asked me this. Ron Kranz asked me this recently. He said, "If we're going to give the civil magistrates a break," he said. You know they don't have to obey God in their in, in in their office. He said, "I wonder who else gets a break. Are we like now giving breaks out to people to, to they they don't have to obey God because because why? I have no clue. They get a free pass. Well, Joel, let's for for the final several minutes here. Any application that you want to share? We've tried to lay out briefly. I know there's so much more we could say. The key things with postmillennialism being the victory of Christ in history. And the fact that because Christ will be victorious in history, you have this idea that nations and rulers and, and individuals and families and society will be transformed by Christ. And there's a lot of opposition to that. And you've said before, one of the main reasons is because people get uncomfortable when, when you say Caesar or the civil ruler must answer to Christ. But any other application you want to share of why this view, I mean, obviously we believe it's biblical, but the application you see from it, why it matters. Sure enough, um, I'd like to speak about one application from the past, if you will. And it has to do with Psalm chapter 2. And you mentioned Psalm chapter 2 a little bit earlier. It starts out, why do the nations rage? And people imagine a vain thing. And when you read the Psalm, the vain thing is that civil magistrates can somehow oppose Christ. That's what's vain in, the, in, that, in that Psalm. Now, a lot of people will say this is future, rule with a rod of iron. So we're talking about application here. So, Chris, Psalm 2 is the second most uh, quoted psalm in the New Testament. Psalm 110 is the first. I'll just slip this in here. Psalm 2 and Psalm 110, I believe, teach a post-millennial kingdom. They are the two most quoted psalms in the New Testament. It would really help us to get those two psalms right when we're talking about millennialism, especially since they're quoted so often. But let's talk, I'm going to talk about an application of Psalm 2 in the past, because many people say rule with a rod of iron, that's in the future. Psalm 2 can't be, uh, can't be um, applied right now. You have that in front of you, Chris. Would you mind reading that a, a little bit? Psalm 2? Yes, please. Thanks. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. 
Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly, quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So let's ask a quick question. The psalmist there says, be wise, kings of the earth, right? Subject yourselves to the son, right? Is that future or is that present? Well, we have an answer for that because, and this was very big to me. Again, this was another verse, frankly, that brought me out of dispensationalism from the scriptures. I'd always been taught that that was future. That isn't now. Christ really isn't ruling with a rod of iron now. And so this is not, this has no application to us today. Well, I then read Acts 4 once upon a time. In Acts 4, they're being persecuted for, um, for, for believing in Christ. And they pray a prayer. The, the people being persecuted, the church, prays a prayer. And I want to reference this, this prayer right now. It says that this is in, in Acts 4, uh, 24 through 26. They raised their voice to God, this people praying, and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. Okay, so far, Chris, they're only quoting it. Now they're going to apply it. Listen to their application. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. They believed that the that the advent of Christ fulfilled Isaiah's prophecy, or, or excuse me, Psalm two, right there. They applied it, and like I say to people when I talk about this, I am not going to be in the position to explain to these people proper the, 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 in, in Acts four proper eschatology. I'm going to let their eschatology influence mine, if that's okay with everybody. They thought it was being fulfilled then. Not going to argue. So that's the first application, an application from the past. And think about this, Chris. Do we have a boldness problem in the church of Jesus Christ today when it comes to proclaiming his authority? Well, maybe it's because we don't understand Psalm 2 and its its application because we have an improper idea of eschatology in the future, and especially the position of Christ as king over the kings of the world. Chris, they, they mention that, that uh, psalm, and, they're, they're applica- they, and they apply it to Herod and Pilate, and their own personal application is now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. Could it be that our failed ideas of eschatology here have robbed us of our boldness? If we don't have this vision of Christ on the throne and that he is conquering his enemies, certainly would make us more hesitant to go out with that message. I mean, what message do we have to the civil magistrate if it's not submit to Christ? You know, make better laws? Well, if we don't even have a standard, then right. I, what, do you, what do you mean by better? Right. Uh, put the guy in jail for – some people say put the guy in jail for longer is better. Some people say don't put him in jail at all is better. With no standard coming from Christ, you, you, you may be doing damage with your ideas of better. We have time for one more application, post-millennial position, why it matters, how it applies to today, the church's role in the world. Yes, uh, real quickly, I want to talk about the idea of the gates of hell, uh, where Christ said, I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Okay, so we already have a conflict, conflict going all the way back to uh, Genesis chapter 3, the seed of the woman versus the seed, seed of the serpent. So we have this conflict going on between the church of Jesus Christ and the gates of hell. 
the gates of hell will not prevail. Well, the gates, gates are not an, an offensive thing. The gates don't march out and try to conquer people. They, they defend. So when Christ says the gates of hell will not prevail against it, what he's saying is that the gates of hell will one day crash before the onslaught of the church. And, of course, the simple illustration is Samson, when he faces the gates of the one city where the, you know, the, the Bible tells us there in Judges, people are waiting by the gates. They are waiting for him to come in. Right, but they they actually put up um, they actually secured the gates because they thought he would come and try to get through the gates and then they would attack him. Right, so Samson comes along, picks up the gates and the posts, walks off and throws them on a hill someplace. I believe that Chris, quite frankly, is an excellent illustration of gates not prevailing. One more thing about that, and I challenge my 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 friends that don't believe in post-millennialism with this all the time. And in fact, you and I were together and we had this conversation here recently. If you believe that the gates of hell will actually do the prevailing and things really are getting worse and worse, then I need this application. When was the high point of history? Right. Because if next year is worse than this year, then last year must've been better. So we just, Chris, we should be able to go back and back and back. And maybe the golden age was, was passed and we never knew it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Anybody who does want to talk about this, whether it's just a, a discussion, a debate, or even if you have questions you want to send in, uh, send them in and we could do another episode with Joel answering the objections to postmillennialism. We'd love to have a discussion with any local pastors that want to come in and discuss this, especially the application. Uh, that's a huge part of this because what does it mean that Christ is ruling and reigning now? And what, with that reality, what message do we have for the world? Once again, well, I'm going to go to Isaiah 9, 6, that we quote you know, all the time around Christmas. Unto us a child is born, unto the son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor and so forth, all these wonderful names. Of the increase of his government there, uh, and excuse me, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Chris, if you believe that Christ was enthroned at his ascension, then you have to be a post-millennialist. Yet you have to be. He's governing and his government is going to increase, and with that increase, there's going to be peace. And haven't we had enough of people you know, telling us about world peace without the government of Christ? They will only bring us world conflict. You cannot have peace without the government of Christ, because Christ says in Isaiah, there is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. You want world peace? You aren't going to get it without the government of Christ. Amen. Amen. Well said. Well, for more about postmillennialism, uh, Joel, just as mentioned, just gave a, a talk on it, and I'll try to put a link here in the description. You can also find it on Independence Reform Bible Church's YouTube page, which is where Joel Saint is pastor. Uh, you can also find more of his messages there. Uh, we'll try to come back and hit this topic again, maybe with some objections, maybe from another angle. If you'd like to come in and talk about this, please reach out. Let me know. My name is Chris, the managing editor of the Lancaster Patriot. For more information about us, go to thelancasterpatriot.com. Subscribe to this podcast and share it with your friends. Until next time, God bless and Godspeed.